Good morning, Ben, and good morning to every one of you. Welcome. Thanks for being here this morning, whether in person or online. We're glad to have you here, and thanks for joining us for worship. A couple of things for you just real quickly as we begin. Uh, one, of course, Easter is weeks away. I'll remind you again, please, these cards, uh, use them, inviting folks, bringing folks along with you. They're not any good to us after Easter. Uh, so please, even if you took one already, I keep them in my car so that I always just have them ready to invite someone to come along on Easter. So do that. Participate in that and be a part of it. You saw a video for life. And of course, if you walked in the, if, through the lobby area, you saw pies, a table full of pies to bid on. I want to encourage you to go out and spend hundreds of dollars on pie. Now, normally, I like pie, so I could make that pitch anytime anyway. But I want to tell you the Life Conference that we are sending our high school students to is, has such profound impact, you really can't imagine it. And I mean that so sincerely. Uh, we worked for years to, to plan and to get money raised for the, student, for the students to go. We've got students in our history of our church who are following Jesus today and serving Jesus today because they found themselves at that conference with 5,000, 6,000 other students and made a decision either to follow Jesus or to give their lives to serving him. So when you go buy a pie, you're not just buying pie. You are investing in these kids and that ability to go. The highest price we've ever had go for a pie was $500. It was my pie, but I, that, that's <laughs> it's really not important. That's really not important. By all means, please go and uh, participate today in that pie auction and uh, make it worthwhile. This morning, I want to continue in our series together. We're talking about being up close and personal. We're talking and looking at the Gospel of John, and in fact, we're having John speak to us about all the things that he witnessed firsthand, which brought him to the place of saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. The things that he wrote down, he wrote down specifically because they had impact on him and his hope would be that as he recounts them and records them and then for generations later as people would read them, they'd be encouraged and they would make a similar decision. John was not only convincing, you know, was not just uh, walking through this process of of uh, walking with Jesus and watching, but he's seeing specifically Jesus working these signs or these miracles, and they made a difference. They made a difference in his life, and I would suggest makes a difference in our life because we operate from the same perspective, and that is, you know, we're, we're kind of quick to buy in on things. You got to sell me. You have to prove it to me, and so John records these things because they actually made the point for him. All of the things that John writes down, these seven very specific, um, if you will, signs, miracles, every one of them were pointing to something, and he used that word signs because signs lead us down a path. Now, think about it. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He, he claimed to be sent from God. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, those are crazy claims to make. Absolutely crazy claims to make, not to mention that in that day, all sorts of people claimed to be the Messiah. Just remember that, that in the culture they were in, all sorts of people were claiming to be the one sent by God. Crazy, unless there is something or some things that happen along the way that substantiate the claim. So John tells us, listen, I saw these things. 
I witnessed these things. I walked with Jesus. I was with him. These were not random acts of kindness. You know, quite honestly, if you don't get this piece that these miracles are all signs, then when you read the accounts, a lot of them don't make sense because you think, well, why did you, why did you do that there? Why not this same thing over here? Why not this? Because they're not just random acts of kindness. They all have a plan. There's a, st- a strategic plan involved. They have significance. They point to something. And in the end, they all pointed to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's the whole point of what John's writing. 2,000 years later, John would say, listen, what convinced me then, I'm writing them down so they'll convince you now. So today we come to our third sign. The first sign you might recall was back in a town called Cana. It was the water into wine. That was the first one. The second sign was in the same town back in Cana. But this time he was passing through and he happened to meet there a nobleman, you might recall, who came and found Jesus and said, my son is dying and I need you to come with me to make him well. You recall we talked about this last week and Jesus said, no, no, I'm not going, but your son will live. We talked about the fact that there's a powerful moment here when we realize that Jesus asked him, this guy, to do something that he's been asking us to do now for thousands of years, and that is to believe me based on the stories and witnesses, uh, witness of other people. You're here, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're following Jesus because of John's account, because other people have said, I have found it to be true, even though you didn't eyewitness it. You, you, weren't, you weren't walking with Jesus. are now on their way back up to Jerusalem. Just a reminder, whenever you read Scripture, in almost every case, you'll find them reference Jerusalem as they're all going up to Jerusalem. Even though where Jesus is at in the story is north of Jerusalem, so normally we think up, we think heading north, they go up to Jerusalem even though it's south. The reason for that is Jerusalem's on a city on a hill. So anywhere in the country, you go up to Jerusalem. So they're going back up to Jerusalem. They were going there for some religious festivals that were taking place. And John says that when they got to Jerusalem, they came to a place near the Sheep Gate, which today would be the Lion's Gate. And he says there's a pool of water there called Bethesda, and it's called the Pools of Bethesda. Uh, The pools are surrounded by these five colonnades. They've got covers over the top. It would have been fairly pretty to see, except for the fact that on these colonnades, the Bible tells us that the pools were surrounded not only by these coverings, but in this place were all sorts of people that were battling and struggling with disease. John gives us some incredible details. Now, just a quick side note for you. Some people, I'll I'll give you some background because some of us have heard some of these things. There are some people out there, some quote-unquote scholars, that try to convince people that they can't believe in the Bible because, quite honestly, the Gospels really have no, uh, no authenticity because they were written so far after the fact they're not true. They didn't really happen. They were made-up stories. Well, if you look at what John says and look at what the disciples describe, we have some great, proof, some great proofs along the way. You see, John gives details because he was actually there. John can give these details because he was actually there. And it tells us this, that though people will try to reject it, it talks about the time that Jesus, that when John gives us this story, he's talking about the fact that he was with Jesus at a specific point in time, and he was actually there to witness it all and see it. What that means is that gives an early date to the Gospels, not a late date to the Gospels. So sometimes 
People are convinced by well-meaning scholars, if you will, to try to say the Bible wasn't written until much, much later. But we, if you look at the details, you'll find that what John says is that he had details he couldn't have had if this all happened after the fact and if it all had been destroyed. He was there. And so it gives authenticity to the account. So what did he witness? What did he observe? Here's our text this morning, John chapter 5, verse 1. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now the day on which this took place was a Sabbath and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick it up and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow and that told you to do this, to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I want to remind you again that we don't preach for information. We preach for transformation. Let's pray and ask God to transform us this morning. Father, as we come to your word, as we stop and we look at this, uh, this next picture in the story that's presented to us, I would pray that you would take at this point, take all the distractions of our life and set them aside. For even though it's Sunday morning, we have so many distractions that we carry with us into the day, battles that we're in, struggles that we're in, family problems we're facing, all of the things that t tend to occupy our minds. I would pray, Lord Jesus, that in these few moments we have, that you would just set all of those aside for us so that we can just sit in your presence and let you speak to us. Change us and transform us. And I would ask that you'd start that in me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's dig in. So near the Sheep Gate, there was this pool, Bethesda. There's five colonnades, five decks, if you will. And under these colonnades, all gathered around, were a mass number of disabled and sickly people. People all suffering from some type of disease and for all sorts of sicknesses and ailments that they had. The blind were there, the lame were there, the crippled, the diseased, the paralyzed, people in pain. I want you to make sure you get this. This is a picture of life's most desperate people in that moment. I mean, if there's a place where the most desperate of life would assemble themselves, this would be the assembly of the desperate. And there they are, day in and day out. 
Now remember, at this time, doctors were, were not a great source of help, and with few exceptions, there was very little that they could do. Now, one of the problems that doctors had in this time, and there were physicians back then, but one of the problems physicians had is they really didn't understand the working of the human body like we would understand it today. Now, one of the problems for that was this. Doctors were not allowed to examine a dead body or do an autopsy, anything like that. They are only allowed to work on people who are living. And so admittedly, as, as gruesome as this is in our lives, one of the reasons we know so much about the human body is because we're allowed to look at a dead body and the scientists, the doctors, are able to go and learn and figure out what's happened, what goes wrong, so you can apply that. In that day, they could. Now, I'd also say there's a negative bent to that that's kind of creepy. So because the doctors can't work on a dead body, so when someone was dying, they would urgently get there and they'd start the quote-unquote surgery, autopsy, early. They would start the process of trying to help, but they would be doing this while they're still alive because they know once they're dead, they're out. So think about that. When someone says, I'm going to call the doctor and you're not well, you're going, no, I think I'm fine. <laughs> Leave the doctor out of this. So now, please know, if we go back and look historically, we find that so the doctors had really no role in the average person's life. The only people that really could afford them were the really, really wealthy. And so for the common person, what resources did they have? Well, truth of it is, we go look in history, we find the resources they had, they had temple worship, they had prayer they could go to, they had superstition. I mean, there was that, what's, that's it. There was no physician in this, in this case that could give them a, a magic potion or a pill that would help them. So they relied on things like superstition. Maybe that superstition would help. Maybe a prayer for, by the priest, someone praying over them. Maybe that would help. That's what they had. Now, in this case, there's a belief that every once in a while, one of the scripture texts tells every season, an angel of God would come and stir the waters. If you know the story, you've heard that story, that the angel would come and stir the waters in these pools. And the idea was that whenever the angel showed up stirring the waters, whoever got in first would be healed. Now, if you notice something, I just told you something about the story that I did not read to you in the story. I just told you an angel came and stirred the waters, but I just read you the account, and that's not in there. Right? When I read it for you, I had nothing in the story about an angel that came. Well, there's a reason for that. I want to give you a quick background to this because uh, this is a piece where you knowing a little bit about this helps you be able to defend the authenticity of Scripture. So here's the background to it. Here's what I read you in, uh, in, in the passage we just went through. It says this, there here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. If you look in the New International Version, which I just read, it has verse 3, and then it goes to 5. There's no 4. If you look at it, you kind of say, wonder what happened to 4. There's actually a footnote that has that. And here's what it would say in like the New King James Version. Here's what verse 4 would say in different translations. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease they had. Well, why the difference? Why is for, you know, omitted from some texts and not others? See, here's the background to it. We, don't, we are not able to absolutely authenticate the story that the angel came and stirred the waters. 
In fact, there's many different thoughts. One is an angel did come, but we have no accounting of anyone seeing an angel. Uh, we have no accounting of, of, of exactly what took place. And in fact, some people have done some studies to try to say that they've looked at this pool, they found it lo- located where it would have been, and it would have had a, a deep fissure in the ground that would allow gases to release from the, from the co- Earth's core. And so every now and then there'd be a release of gas, everything would bubble, that would be the stirring. That would be sulfur water, and of course, there are some medicinal effects to that. Get in the water, you're healed. But the problem is, we can't authenticate it. We don't know exactly know what was taking place. So now, you might say, well, then can we believe what's there? Well, what's interesting, whether the angel did show up of God and stir the water or not stir the water, the, the story still stands. Why? Because in every accounting we have, in some texts, we don't have that verse 4, in other texts we do. But in every single text, every one of the ancient manuscripts, though they may not include the description of the angel, they all describe this guy's response when he says, when the water stirs, I'm not able to get into it in time. That we know for sure. Now, we have all the story background of the angel, but we don't know exactly, does an angel show up? Are they automatically healed? Or is it a superstition that gets passed along the way? We don't know that. But we do know by every answer in every other text, the guy's answers is always the same. I don't have anyone to help me get in the water when the water is stirred. So we know what the storyline was. We know what they believed, and we know that it's all factual. So that's the difference that's there. That's why we don't have it in some texts, in some texts, in other places we do. Now, here's what's important. People believed that something would happen at that moment in that pool when the waters began to bubble. They believed that whoever got in first was going to be healed. A couple of things I want you to think about as we walk through the story. First thing, it's not pretty. Imagine the smell and the stink of that area. You're talking about the most diseased people. And in fact, we do have in some historical accounts, the Jews wouldn't go into that area. Only if absolutely required, they would stay away from that area full of, quote-unquote, unclean people, the sick and the diseased. I mean, you think, about, uh, you think about not wearing a mask in a doctor's office or wearing a mask in the community these days, man, you'd be masking up there like crazy because of that place. So that'd be one setting. Second thing I want you to think about, imagine the chaos of that place. Imagine the chaos when somebody says, the water! Think about it. You're there every day. Your only hope of being healed is that you're the first one in the pool. You know what? I know people. And I, can, and I know the insensitivity and the downright nasty nature of people. And I can imagine somebody saying, watch this. Water! The water's bubbling quick! Just to watch these poor people in chaos, trying to get there. A third thing, imagine, if you would, the hopelessness of this place. Make sure you get the picture. Imagine the hopelessness. If they had someone that would love them and care for them, someone that would take them home at night, bring them some food, take them to the bathroom, maybe life was a little bit better. But every single day, imagine every single day, every morning, getting there early, because if you believe this to be true and it's your only hope, you got to be in the front row. So every day they go through the same process, same hope, same fears. And then let's say the waters do bubble and someone else gets in. You go from chaos and hope to absolute hopelessness. 
because once again, you're out. Jesus walks into this area that I guarantee you no other Jew typically would go through, and he sees a guy there who is lame, can't walk, and so he inquires about him, finds out some storyline about the guy, and find out that he's been lame and not able to walk for 38 years. Now, we don't know if he's been coming to that pool for 38 years. We expect he's been coming there for a long, long, long time. Maybe his whole life for 38 years. We don't know. But 38 years is a pretty long time to not be able to walk. Now, we're not sure, and here's the part I begin to think about with a smile. I'm not sure why this guy. Why this guy? But for some reason, Jesus decides this is the time and this is the guy for another sign. And so Jesus asks him a very odd question. He asks him this, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Isn't that an odd question? Hey, you want to get well? Duh, no, I don't. (laughs) I mean, that's the oddity, right? I mean, that's the oddity. Why would you ask someone who's at the pool every single day hoping to be healed, why would you ask them, do you really want to get healed? But I have to be honest with you, as I think about it and ponder it, the truth of it is, not everybody does. Some of us have been complaining and complaining and complaining about issues in your life, and yet you won't do what it takes to get well, right? Because sometimes it's just easier to complain about it. Sometimes getting well is harder than staying sick. Sometimes getting well and asking for help calls for more humility to do that than just to stay addicted, to just to stay stuck where you're at. So let's be honest. For many of the things that we battle with, it's a fair question for God to say to me, so Scott, do you want to get well or do you just want to stay the way you are? It's a fair question. It's actually a powerful question that I expect that some of us here today actually need to honestly answer. For what's so incredible about God's Word, here's a story that happened 2,000 years ago, and yet in this moment, God's Holy Spirit shows up in your ear saying to you and to me, It's a pretty good question he's raising, right? Do you want to be well? This thing that you battle, this thing doesn't go away, do you want to be well or not? Are you going to do the right things or do you want to just stay the way you are? So do you? You want to get well? That's the question. Back to our story, Jesus decides not to impose his will on this guy. He could have just said, well, you're going to be well no matter what. But he doesn't. He actually lets him in on it and says, do you want to be well? And turns out the guy does. What a surprise. Now, remember, this guy has no idea who Jesus is. He has no clue. He's just some guy. He has no idea. Think about this. He has no idea that he's one of the few people, in comparison to the millions since that day, one of the few people who actually had the opportunity to stare right in to the eyeballs of the Son of Man, the Son of God. He's this far away having a personal conversation 
with the Messiah. The one that they've been waiting for for generations. The one that we serve and follow and, and, and pray to and rejoice over and celebrate and worship about. This guy is in face-to-face with Jesus. And he's just some guy. I love this. He has I, no idea. And he says this in verse 7. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Do you want to be well? I, <laughs> I don't have every, anyone to help me get into the pool. Now, again, I want to say to you, what a sad and awful scene if you'll think about this. Someone, someone shouts, the water, the water. And think and picture that chaos. Desperate people clawing, pulling, rolling, throwing themselves without any regard to anyone else, to get into that water. If they have family there, push me, throw me, just pick me up and throw me in. And imagine every single person there clamoring for the same thing in the same moment. And imagine the pain that exists, the eternity of pain they've been in already. And imagine you're fighting to get there and you hear the splash where someone gets in before you. And then how long is it going to be before it happens yet again? It's a horrible scene. Now, Jesus looks at this one guy. Why him? Why not all of them? I don't know. But he says to this one guy, get up. Do you want to get well? I don't have anyone to help me into the water. Get up. Interesting, the the word here that's used, get up, has four possible meanings. All of them fit. He could be get up, wake up, rise up come to life. Either way, it all works. He says, listen, come to life, get up. But what he says next is actually the sign part of the miracle. It's in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Here it is. Pick up your mat and walk. There's the sign piece. There's the point of the story that we'll kind of pick apart here as we walk through this important next sign. So don't forget, John was there. John saw all this. And he says, so pick up your mat and walk, and by the way, um, take your mat with you wherever you go. I mean, we're not talking about you know, tidy up your space. Pick up your mat, wherever you go, start walking, just take it with you. Uh, ver- chat, I mean, uh, verse 9. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who'd been healed, it's a Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied... The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. He was gone. I don't know who told me. I just know he did, and I just knew what he told me to do. Now, John was there, and he saw this. At once, he says, Jesus says, stand up. At once, the guy stands up probably jumps up, probably starts walking around in circles. I have a bunch of things. You know when you put on a pair of shoes in a shoe store? 
You put your shoes on, and you can't leave the store with them, so you get your shoes on, and what do you do? You walk up and down the aisle. If they're tennis shoes, you jump around. You, you practice quick starts like you ever quick start anyway, but you practice the quick start. You know, you, I want to make sure when I'm running, I hurt my feet. Yeah, okay, got it. But you go through this whole process and routine to see if the shoes fit well. Imagine seeing if your legs still work after 38 years. This guy gets up. I mean, I'm guessing he's jumping around, he's jumping, you know, I can't believe this, I can't believe this. I'm expecting the fact that he's doing all this stuff, just amazed, turns around, and Jesus is gone. He's just gone. Not a miracle, he didn't vanish, he just walked away. He's just in the crowd. This man had been lame for 38 years, got up, and he walked. But when he picked up his mat, you need to know when he did that, Jesus was poking the beehive with a stick. When he told him, pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath day, Jesus is taking a stick and he's smacking that beehive. And man, the religious leaders are buzzing. It was the Sabbath. Now on the Sabbath, in Jerusalem specifically, and anywhere around the temple, the Pharisees were on duty. Sabbath patrol. Their job was to make sure that not only were they living the perfect life, that you were living the perfect life. Their job was to make sure no one was breaking Sabbath rules. So they see this man carrying a mat. That's a clear violation. He's walking, carrying a mat. He's on his way probably to the temple, probably to celebrate. Now think about this. Possibly he had not been in the temple for years. He just hadn't been there. No one wanted to carry him. No one would take him there. And on top of that, if I go to the temple, what do I miss? I miss being by the pool. So if you believe the pool is going to heal you, you have pretty much sealed the fact that every single day that's going to be your life because you can't afford to miss a day. Imagine one day you decide to go to the temple, and when you get done with temple, they all say, it happened, and you missed it. So we're thinking by looking at this story that he hasn't been to the temple in a long, long time, certainly not very often. He can now walk, and the first place he wants to go is to the temple to worship. That just makes sense to me. Now, we don't know that for sure. Now, maybe he had been there for 38 years, but certainly any time he's gone before, someone had to help him, so here he is. Today's his day uh, until some legalist church person walks up, to, uh, walks up to him and says, Hey, ho, hold on, pal. Where do you think you're going with that? And I can imagine him saying, what? Because I'm telling you right now, if you're this guy, you're not thinking about Sabbath, and you don't even care that you're carrying a mat. And I think, they go, hey, hold on. And he's going, what? Well, it's a Sabbath. And you're going, so? Yeah, well, it's a Sabbath. You're carrying your mat, and that's a clear violation of Sabbath rules. Uh, you're working, that's what it means, that you're working on the Sabbath. No, 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 no. Now, just so you know, it was not a violation it was an imposed interpretation. It was not a violation of the law. It was an interpretation that somebody had made. You see, they had all of these extra add-on rules because they didn't like gray areas. Let's be honest, for many of us, we kind of lean towards rules because we don't like gray. Black and white is easier. It's just that simple. I say this to pastors when I'm working with new pastors and, and I'm asked to do a couple of lectures or some seminars, whatever. One of the things I talk about is one of the hardest things in pastoral ministry is gray. And the longer I live, the grayer the world gets. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't absolutes. doesn't mean the gospel isn't the gospel, that there are some absolute truths. But there's a lot of gray stuff out there. And black and white is so much easier. 
And these guys like black and white. So they have this interpretation that makes it easier for them to decide what's right and what's wrong. And their position was that you're breaking the fourth commandment, which is you're not keeping the Sabbath holy because by carrying the mat, you're working. But the point of the commandment was to take a break from labor, not to take a break from love. The point of the commandment was to take a break from your occupation, not to take a break from your mission. To take a break from your job, not to take a break from compassion. But this is what happens to religious people. And I'm not just talking about church people. This is what happens to all religious people. This happens to any kind of religious person when they forget or they ignore the why behind the why. The why I'm doing this, the what I'm trying to accomplish beyond the actual rule regulation. It's when we ignore the why behind the why we are here in the first place. Let me be more specific. Let me give you something more to think about, maybe something to hate me for. It's really tough to see which way you'll go on this one. This is what happens when we choose to defend a theological system or an ideology or a political agenda. This is what happens when we begin to defend or pick party loyalty or take some opinion that allows us to be pitted against other people. And this is what happens when we decide that the ideology or my opinion is what matters most. This is what happens when embracing anything, when it becomes more, when that thing becomes more important than the people that I'm called by God to love and to serve. This is what happens when defending a political opinion or a, a public uh, idea or opinion or, uh, or embracing some kind of opinion, whatever it might be, that takes precedence over the people that we're supposed to be caring about and serving and loving. And it's very, very difficult to see this in ourselves. Because when I'm holding this opinion, I'm sure that it's the right opinion. I'm sure that if everyone else had the same opinion, it would be a better world. Right? Think of where you're at politically. Wouldn't it be a better place? Everybody agreed with you? Wouldn't it be a better place? Everybody voted for your person you want in office? Wouldn't you agree it would be a better place? Everyone landed where you land on all the issues of today? See, that's what happens to us. And it's very hard to see that in ourselves. I'll tell you why it's hard. I'll kind of point it out and I'll prove it. Because right now, most of you agree with what I'm saying. Most of you agree. We live in this culture today where you see it so vividly. So most would agree that that's exactly what's taking place. But it's taking place in other people, not you. That's how we view it. Uh, right now, some of you are thinking, oh, man, this is good stuff. I can think of the people who need to hear this. That's exactly how it goes. I make the point, you shake your head yes, because you know that there are people that really need to hear this. They're locked into some theological position, some political position, some party line agenda, and you're thinking, man, I just wish they could hear. I'm going to get them a link so they can listen to this themselves. Oh, I wish more Republicans were here hearing this today. Oh, I wish the Democrats were here listening to this today. I wish my mother-in-law were here listening to this today. Now, just so you know, uh, my mother-in-law is not this person. I just threw it in because I fit, but it's not her. But there are people that you would say right now, oh, I wish they'd hear this because you know what? They won't listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to him. And he's right because they've gone off the deep end. And right now, every single one of us can think of someone that you think this applies to. Hold on. 
Here's what I think Jesus would say to us before we send people the link to YouTube to watch and listen to this sermon. I think Jesus would say, why don't you look in the mirror first? You know what? He would not say that. I think he would say, why don't you take a long look at me first? Before you're bent on making your agenda known to the people around you, your agenda about politics, your agenda about presidents, your agenda about masks or vaccinations, your agenda about immigration, whatever it might be, before you make that known, I think Jesus would say, why don't you take a long look at me first? You see, friends, when what's best for the souls and needs of people is no longer what's most important to you, then you're at odds with God. When you find yourself in a place where what's best for the people around you, that gets pushed aside and is no longer the most important thing to you. When it comes to their life, you're out of touch with God. You're at odds. When what's best for the people around me is no longer what's the most important thing to me, I'm at odds with God. And the reason... I so clearly say this is because what John explained to Nicodemus, which I mentioned last week. Don't forget, in just passing, I mentioned it, but Jesus has this discussion with Nicodemus about what he has to do in his life, about you got to be born again, and Jesus gives him this answer. But it's right after this dialogue with Nicodemus that I'm thinking John, in that moment, says, let me help clarify this. Remember, you see, God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved people that he gave up his one and only son. He so loved people, he gave up what would be the agenda of his life. My son. He sent his son to pay the penalty for their sin and for mine, regardless of their political party Regardless of their view on masks or vaccines or immigration, sex education, election results, any of it, God's priority is people. And listen, everyone will hear that and go, yep, right. And yet we seem to forget it when the right issue comes along that gets us all stirred up. Because we live in a democracy and we can pick and choose the things we want to believe and the things we want to stand on. And God would say, regardless of that, people first priority even the people who deny him and reject him he is still their priority jesus cared about people above his right to a fair trial he cared about people above his right to being heard and respected when's the last time you were disrespected by someone and you still cared immensely about their heart and their souls there's a difference between us and Jesus. Listen, anything I do to hurt another person is sin. Anything I do that puts a hurdle for someone else in their path to coming to Jesus is sin. Any theological thing, any political thing, any public opinion that, that, that I use as justification for me not treating someone with dignity and humility is sin. Christians, we need to be very, very careful when we start taking select points of view 
out of the context of Scripture, away from the context of Scripture, and somehow justify our arrogant attitudes, our behaviors. That happened to me this week, and in a moment I'll tell you that story. You see, their view is, the leaders of the day, they're the Pharisees, their view is, this is crystal clear. This is clearly a Sabbath violation. You're walking with your mat on the Sabbath. This is forbidden. We stand in judgment of you. But, please know, we're not being judgmental. The law stands in judgment of you. That's my opinion here. I mean, there's all sorts of evidence here that says you're wrong. I love the interaction that happens next. Verse 10 and 11. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I love this. Here's this guy. He's carrying his mat. I imagine he's got his mat on his shoulder. And they say, hey, 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 oh, buddy, you know, Sabbath forbids you doing that. What's going on? He doesn't even know the name of Jesus. He simply says this, the guy who made me well told me to pick up my mat and take it with me and walk. I hadn't walked in 38 years, just so you know. And this guy says, walk and take your mat with you. Let me paint the picture for you. Here's what I think is happening. Our lame guy is walking, and I think he's answering like this. Hey, listen, it's not like I'm trying to violate the Sabbath law here. It's not like I'm trying to violate the Ten Commandments. I think it might go something like this. I think he might be looking at these Pharisees saying, do you even know who I am? Do you know anything about me? Do you know my story? The reason I'm carrying my mat is because the guy who made me well after not being able to walk for 38 years, the guy who made me well, the guy who actually took time to talk to me, the guy who actually spent some time with me, the guy that actually looked at me and felt something for me, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I'm opting to obey that guy. I'm opting to obey that guy, the guy who chose to heal me, not the guys who've been ignoring me as a sinner for 38 years. I'm choosing to follow the guy that looks at me and sees me for who I am and makes me whole. Don't forget, in this culture, he would be considered to have sinned. Remember, we've talked about this before, that when someone was sick with something like this, it was always a question, who sinned, them or the parents? You know, the law in that time said this, if a pregnant woman went into a, 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 a spiritualist temple, not the temple, but worshiping some other god, some pagan temple, she would be considered to have sinned, but on top of that, now her child has sinned because she's pregnant. So whenever someone was sick, if they were sick from, from birth, the question was, who sinned? Which one? If they got sick after birth, it was really clear this person had sinned. He basically is saying this, guys, I opt to listen to the guy who chose to heal me, not the guys who've been ignoring me. The guy who got involved in my life instead of the guys who for 30 years have judged my life. I'm listening to the guy who said, you can walk. He said, pick up the mat. I'm picking up the mat. That's what I know. Now, listen, you can't disagree with that, right? If you're the Pharisee, what do you say to that? So here's what you say, and here's how it goes. So in our text, uh, verse 12, so they asked him, well, then who is this fellow who told you to pick it up? Now notice, they don't say don't, they just say, well, then who told you this? 
The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd, and he just disappeared again. There was a crowd there, and Jesus walked away. Now, Jesus isn't finished yet, so let's go to verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something at worst will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, what I just read for you has been debated for 2,000 plus years, and those 2,000 years is what sin did this guy commit? What sin are they referring to? When Jesus says, listen, stop sinning, something worse is going to happen to you, and I've got 30 commentaries, old school book commentaries in my office, and you can look them up and every one of them goes, this is a tough one to understand, what is this sin? Everyone tries to figure out what sin this guy committed, but it wasn't until I was reading Andy Stanley who I think he's the first guy I read that got it. And when he said what he thought it was, it was like, absolutely, that's exactly what it is. It goes like this. Jesus says to the guy, sees the guy at the temple carrying the mat. Don't forget, Jesus knew that the carrying the mat was a problem. That was a violation of the law and that this guy would be accused of sinning. I get it. I see Jesus walk up and goes, hey, I see you're well. And the guy goes, hey, it's you. And I think Jesus with a smile looks at him and says, hey, better stop sinning. Something worse is going to happen to you. The mat thing. I think Jesus is poking fun. They're saying, it's sin. I think he's going, yeah, that's right. You better stop something. Stop sinning. Something worse is going to happen. Think about it. What worse can happen? I mean, the guy's been, been lame for 38 years. I think Jesus is kind of smiling, saying, hey, I hear you got in trouble there. Uh, better stop that sin or something worse is going to happen. And the guy's going, right? <laughs> right? Unbelievable, isn't it? I can walk, and they care about the bad. And Jesus going, I know, I got it. This is the world we live in. <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? And the guy going, it is absolutely crazy. I, got, I think that's it. It fits. Where he says, you better stop sinning or something worse is going to happen. I mean, what worse can happen? Hey, put your mat down, or we're taking your birthday away. I'm telling you right now. What can they do that this guy hasn't already endured? I think that not only is Jesus and the guy smiling, I think John just might be laughing when he tells the story. And so Jesus says to him, hey, I see you got a big sin going on there, but I put that down, something's going to happen to you. People who truly meet Jesus, people who finally realize that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, these people are free. They're set free from guilt. They're set free from religion. They're set free from fear. They're set free from legalism, from religiosity. They're set free from judging other people. Religion loses its grip on you because the love of Christ sets us free. It's an incredible thing. Let's wrap this up. John must have loved to tell this story. So this guy, with his mat still over his shoulder, goes to the religious leaders because it says, he goes back to them and says, hey, listen, the guy you're looking for, I just talked to him. I now know who he is. He's Jesus, and he'd be happy to talk to you. So they want to have a conversation. Here's our last, our last text. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
It's interesting if you read all the different miracles and signs that Jesus did. It's amazing that of all the things he performed, clearing out of the temple of the money changers, this moment as well, the religious leaders never ask him why he did it. They only want to know who you are. See, that fits in the narrative of John. John's, these are signs to who he is. Because everyone wants to know who he is, that he has the authority to do these things. And so his answer is this. Listen, you guys are upset because I'm working on the Sabbath. My father is always working on the needs of people. And if he's working, so am I. In his words, he identifies God as his heavenly father. And that makes him God's son. And you need to know they're losing their minds over this thing. Now, let me wrap up here with a statement. Let me make, here's what I think John is making clear. Some of you will love this. Some of you will hate this. Some will agree to this, and some will try to find an exception clause to it. What I'm about to tell you next, if we get this right, changes the world. And I don't say that tritely or lightly. There's no exaggerating here. Those early Christians those early disciples, those early followers of Christ, they got it right, and that's why you're here today. The reason you're here 2,000 years later is because some of those believers got it right. What God through John needs you to know, what God through John needs us to live is this, that you beside you, that you beside you at work, that person beside you in traffic, that person beside you at home, that person beside you in your neighborhood, that person beside you on social media, that person beside you here, the person in front of you, to the left of you, to the right of you, front and behind you, those people have to be the priority over and above your potentially flawed views of this world and of life and political positions and all of that. They have to be more important than anything else you care about because the only view that we are absolutely sure fits into the heart of God is the fact that He loves people to the place that He sent His own Son for them. And that's more important than any view that you will try to push on someone else. I forgot that this week. I had a doctor's appointment. Closing story. I had two doctor's appointments. One was my six-month physical. I'm in robust health, just so you know. Um, that's what you say when you see a guy like me. You go, oh, he's robust. Um, the second one was I, I have a problem with my thumbs, pain in my thumbs. So I finally went and got an appointment. I walked in. It was 13. It was 10 degrees, 13 degrees. We had snow Monday morning. I walk into the doctor's office. I've never been there before and just because it was a, spe- a specific appointment to get some shots. I walk in, I walk in, and there's no one else in the room. Two, two women behind the counter have masks on down, down under their chin. I walk in, and immediately they, they pull their masks up, one all the way up, one up to her nose. And I immediately say, listen, you don't have to mask for me. I don't even have a mask, and I'm really free. I don't care. Be free. She goes, well, no, we do. And in fact, you need to put a mask on. And there are masks on. And what they said is it's a violation if, you don't have, if we don't have more mask up. Violation. So I come back in. Now, please know, I'm not unkind. I'm nice. But I walk in with a mask on, and I go, so I got to ask you, if it's a violation, and I came in, and neither one of you had your mask on, aren't you in violation even before I got here? Well, he asked me to understand. The rule is, and she explained it, that it's when patients are here and whatever. And again, I'm, I'm not unkind. I just go, you know, I got it. I really do get it. I'm just saying, sooner or later, sooner or later, we got to come to common sense, common sense here. 
we got to stop acting like this and stop just following blindly rules and just use our heads. Because right outside the door were people that didn't have masks on. And in the hallway, they go with a mask on. So I'm going, I didn't think we got, and so I got on with it. Nice appointment, got all done. They were very kind and courteous. I was not unkind, but man, was I arrogant. Right? You can agree, I was. I jumped in my car, I'm driving back to the office, and I, I jumped in my car and I grabbed one of these and go, oh, I always give these out. I, I was going to give them one of them. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm so glad I didn't give them one of these. Why would I want them to come and hear some arrogant preacher talk about Jesus? the way I just conducted myself over something as stupid as a mask. So that sat inside of me for two days. And I said, I got to go do it. So I got in my car. I drove back to the doctor's office. I walked in. And I said, I don't know if you guys remember me. No one else in the office says those two women. I said, I don't know if you remember me. And she said, we do. I said, yeah, I figured you would. I said, I just need you to know you were kind and you were gracious. And I was an arrogant jerk. She said, well, I want to say something. I said, nope, not till I'm done. I said, there is absolutely no justification for my attitude. I need you to know I'm absolutely wrong we're supposed to, I'm supposed to be better than that. And I am so sorry. And here's some gift cards to Dunkin' Donuts. Go have coffee. And when you go, think, that arrogant guy just maybe isn't so arrogant. She said, well, I want to tell you, you were actually nice when you were arrogant. That does not help me at all. <laughs> I was arrogant. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. We got to do better. Stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, the Pharisees were so wrapped up in the fact that what Jesus did didn't fit into the system. And all Jesus did is say, listen, I've come to care for people. May that be our priority as well the hearts and souls of people. Dismiss us in your grace. Amen. God bless you.